Have you gone to the, um, like Magic Mountain, to those high-speed rides? Have you ever found yourself in one of them that just, it goes up, 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 and then just before it's getting released, you feel like, you, 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 you repent yourself like, oh my goodness, what I was thinking, why am I here? Have you ever felt that way? Yes. Is there anyone here that have never experienced that? Well, I just experienced that a few minutes ago. <laughs> okay. It's interesting that when they gave away all the titles and topics to present, this one nobody chose. And then when I started, um, so I took it because I was the last one. Next time I'll be the first one to choose. <laughs> Um, when it comes to the sanctuary, this is a topic that is very hard to present in 30 minutes. Is um, the sanctuary is one of those things that is so in depth? It has so much in it that. Honestly, it was very hard to concise and summarize everything in 30 minutes. So what I'm going to, I'm going to give some disclaimers. I'm going to give some disclaimers. Number one, I'm not a preacher. Number two, I'm not an expert in the sanctuary. And number three, I ask that the Holy Spirit will be the one that talks to you. Do not see me, see God. Because God is the one that not only brought the sanctuary, but is so much in it. And I would like some deacons or deaconesses to pass a piece of paper. It looks something like this. There's nothing, I just, I like to read from the Amplified version of the Bible. And all the uh, chapters that we're gonna be reading um, I just put them in the piece of paper, so all will be in the same version. But if you don't like the Amplified version of the Bible, you can always use the King James or the New uh, on, the, on, the, on, the, on the pew. Do you, are you aware that the sanctuary doctrine, we are the only one that believe it? Are you aware of that? Among all the denominations, among all the churches, in the world, in the world, Seventh-day Adventist is the only church that believes on the heavenly sanctuary. And um, hopefully, is my prayer today, that as we review what the Bible says, if someone here does not believe in the heavenly sanctuary, may the Holy Spirit convince you otherwise. Let's start. We're going to be covering three things today on the sanctuary. We're going to be reviewing very, very fast the earthly sanctuary. I think everybody that have gone to any type of church and any denomination, I think they cover the basics on the Israelite and the sanctuary in the desert. So we're going to be going very quickly what are those um, furnitures and the part of the sanctuary 
and things like that. So you will have an idea what is the sanctuary in earth. Then also, after that, we're going to uh, go to the heavenly sanctuary. And then we're going to close on how can we put all the sanctuary doctrine in perspective, not only in our spiritual life, not only as an end-time message, but also as our salvation. So our Israelites, when they left Egypt, because God so fit to take them out of Egypt and the bondage when the prophecy ended. How many years did the Israelites were in bondage? Anybody knows? Hmm? No, no, no. How many years did the Israelite was a slave in Egypt? About 430 years, right? So the prophecy said that they were going to be in slavery for 400 430 years. Thank you. Gracias. So let's go and read the first, the first verse that I have. And this is, the question is, why do we have a sanctuary? When they were in slavery for 430 years, God takes them out of bandage to the, to, to the desert. And one of the things very curious that happened is that God gave some instruction. We talked with Moses and gave some instruction. So what is the purpose of this sanctuary in the earth? So we have Exodus 25, 8, which is reads, Have them built a sanctuary for me, so that I may dwell among them. One of the thing, first few things that God wanted to make sure is that he wanted to dwell with us, to the Israelites, to his people, to his children. So God told Moses, you know, build me a sanctuary. The sanctuary is just what is called the tent of meeting, also like a place to meet. And um, God told Moses, build me a sanctuary, a place that I can come down and dwell with you and with, with my children. So what that means, actually, you know, it, it's interesting because God created humans for love and companionship. He even made us in his image so we can understand his better and learn to love him more. When original parents sinned, the closeness that existed between God and his children, it broke. So he needed to bring something down so we can understand what was going on. Now, after we, now that we know what the sanctuary is there for, that God wanted a place to dwell with us, now my other question is, you know, who requested? Who you know, some people say, oh, no, you know, the sanctuary was built, built by man. But who gave the instruction? Who were the ones who asked for it? So if we go to Hebrews 8, 5. It's very simpler. So it says, who serve into the example of the shadow of things. And Moses was admonished of God when he was about to make the tabernacle. For see, said he, that thou may all things according to the pattern so to thee in the mount. So we know that when God requested Moses to build a sanctuary, he didn't let Moses or the human being to decide how to build it, right? God was very specific in how he wanted his sanctuary to look. So God gave an example. An example of what? Of the heavenly. Of the heavenly. It's a shadow. So he, he made a blueprint. He made uh, some instructions to Moses to make sure that 
when he built the sanctuary, was going to be, be built in base of the heavenly sanctuary. Now, the next one we have, Exodus 25, 1, 8, and 9. I summarized it, and it says, And the Lord spoke unto Moses, saying, And let them make me a sanctuary, that may I dwell among them, according to all that I have uh, saw thee, after the pattern of the tabernacle, and the pattern of the, all the instruments thereof. Even so shall you make it. So he gave examples, blueprint, and, uh, and ideas on how to make it similar to the original, right? Or something like that. So there is a sanctuary in heaven because the Bible says so. He made a blueprint of a shadow of something in heaven. And it's very interesting to, to see that when God created or, or, or asked to build the sanctuary, he, he brought his house, an example of it, a very minute and a scale model of his temple, of his, his house in heaven. So let's go and um, let's read another word, another text that Psalms tells us how important it is to understand the sanctuary. So let's go to Psalm 77, 13. And it says, Thy way, O God, is in the sanctuary, who is so great, O God, as our God. This is our scripture reading. So the psalm is reminding us again that the sanctuary is what? It's the way, right? It's God's way. So if we want to know what's going on, like a, a map, you follow that map, right? To make sure that you understand where you are and where you're going to, right? So when it comes to the sanctuary, there are certain furnitures, and I'm going to fly on this one very quickly, that we have. The early sanctuary was divided in three sections, right? We had, what are the parts? The outside was what? We had um, the courtyard. Then we have another building inside divided in two. The first section was the holy place. And the, 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 the last one is the most holy place. And there were certain, certain furnitures in there. The first one was the altar of sacrifice. And you have the, the information in there is the burned dead animals. And the meaning for that was the forgiveness of sin. The first thing that as we sinners, we need to realize, because the sanctuary is a, is a map or a, a, a blueprint of a, self, a plan of salvation. And he wanted to make sure that we understood what would it take to save us. So the first thing, it was the forgiveness of sin. Then the next, that's when they were sacrificed was done, right? Now, the, the next furniture was the labor, and that is where the priest would wash his hands and, and before he went to the holy place. And that is to prevent death by cleaning the priest from defilement. The next one, when you enter into the holy place, we have three furnitures in there. We have the table of showbread, or the presence. It's always before God. It holds the 12 cake of one of each tribe of the Israelites, and, the, and that represents the word of God and an everlasting covenant that was made. 
Then we have the altar of incense. It's just in front before you go into the holy place. And the altar of incense is always burning in front of God. And the meaning of that incense is the prayers that goes to heaven. And the last furniture in that department is the candle of sticks, is the light, the glory of the sh of shown of the Holy Spirit. And represents what? The, Holy the light of the world, right? The candlelight, the, the candlesticks represents the glory of God, represents the light, the world, and who are we, who, who are we called to be like? Are we called to be the light of the world, right? Yeah. And the last department or the last court of room is the most holy, and there was only one, one furniture, which is the Ark of the Covenant that represents God's presence and is the way how God communicates with his people. So when it comes to learning what is the function of the sanctuary, what can you tell me? There's three main purposes of the sanctuary, the earthly sanctuary. Who can tell me those three? I'm going to give you a cheat sheet. Justification. What is the function of the sanctuary? It's mainly three things. It starts with the first furniture of the altar of sacrifice. That we need someone to pay the debt, to pay the price of the sin. Then the second one, it teaches us that there is a mediator, right? And the last one is the judgment, that there is, there is ending, there's something that's going to go. And it's interesting that the sanctuary, it was a three-dimensional model given to show God's way of salvation. The sanctuaries mentioned or allude to through, throughout the Bible and involve the wide variety of symbols and ceremonies. The sanctuary outlines the complete gospel story in details. It presents our substitutionary sacrifice, our priestly mediator, and a God of judgment and mercy. And to demonstrate how God will ultimately and eternally will solve the problem of sin. And the books of Daniel and Revelation base their prophecies in large part in the statue subject of the sanctuary. In fact, the sanctuary and its services are mentioned or allude to many times in the book of Revelation. These are few and any Bible topics more important than for us to understand the subject of the sanctuary. So now that we have an, an, like an idea of what the sanctuary meant, it was like a three-dimensional map that God wanted to show us. And as you know, the Bible have different levels, right? We have what it actually says there in writing. Then we also have a level of what means personally. We also have level of what that means spiritually. It had different levels. So depending upon where you are in the, in, in the ladder of knowledge or in understanding, God brings you in any level that you're ready for. So in the sanctuary, God gave a plan of salvation. And many people think that, oh, that was nailed on the cross. But you're forgetting that the sanctuary, the coming of the Messiah, the dying of Christ, is the only the first furniture of the sanctuary. Have you noticed that? Just the first one. What about the rest? 
You know, when someone comes and tells you, that, oh, that was nailed on the cross, that was, that was the Old Covenant. Okay. Just remember that the Old Covenant, it was the Old, you know, it was, we're going to go over with the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. So just remember that what Christ did, it only covers the first one, the first furniture of the sanctuary. So now we're going to be reviewing what is the heavenly sanctuary. So let's, um, the God sanctuary serving as our high priest. I know you have read that. And I would like for you to go into the handout that I gave you. And I think this is very, very clear. I don't want you to hear my, to hear my opinion about the heavenly sanctuary. Let's go and see what Hebrews says. Hebrews was written about, what, 40, 50, 60 years after Christ's death? And you would think that if the, the message of the sanctuary was abolished in the cross, we would have heard from it, right? But let, let's read what Paul says about what the sanctuary. Let's go verse by verse so you will know if, we, if there is a heavenly sanctuary. This is on verse 1 on Hebrews 8. It says, now the main point of what we have to say is this. So chapter 8 is the summary of what he covered on chapter 1 through 6. Okay, so this is the highlights, the summary of what he was talking about. He says, we have such a high priest, the Christ, who is seated in the place of honor at the right hand of the throne of the majesty God in heaven, a minister officiating priest in the holy places and in the true tabernacle, which is erected not by man, or which was the one in, in earth, but by the Lord. So it's telling us right there on verse 2 that there is a tabernacle in heaven that was not built by man. It was built by whom? By God. So verse 3. For every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifice. In the, all, in the earthly sanctuary, what was the... The, the, um, the event that was happening in the sanctuary. They brought a lamb. That was the, the price, right? That was the gift and the sacrifice. So it is essential for this one, talking about heaven, also to have something to offer. So we have not only the earth, which was pointing not only to Christ's sacrifice, but it was only also pointing to the plan of salvation. Verse 4, now if he were still living on earth, that's saying that if now if Christ would have stayed here on earth, he would not be a priest at all, for they are priests who offer the gift to God in accordance with the law. So the law is asking for what? Gift. A gift or, or a pay to debt. Verse 5, they serve as a pattern. So it's talking about the earth. They serve as a pattern and foreshadowing. Who offered. <clears throat> they serve as a pattern and foreshadowing of what? What has its true existence and reality. The heavenly things of the sanctuary. For when Moses was about to erect the tabernacle, he was warned by God, saying, See that you make it exactly according to the pattern which was shown to you in the mountain. 
So when it comes to God things, God's house, anything that God wants, he's very specific. He doesn't let you decide, you know, I want it this way. No, no, he, this is how he wants it. Because each particular item, color, it has a meaning for us. So, but, <clears throat> but as it is, Christ has acquired a priestly ministry which is more excellent than the old Levitical priestly ministry. So the shadow or, or the example that was on earth is foreshadowing or giving us an idea of what was going to be happening in heaven. For he is the mediator of a better covenant which has been enacted and rest and a better promise. So now we're talking about a covenant. What is the new covenant? So we continue. Now he explains the new covenant. For if that first covenant that was flawless, when he talks about the first covenant of which it was flawless, what that means? Now, if you remember the sanctuary on earth, when God brought the sanctuary, I mean, brought the blueprint, so Moses will build the sanctuary, it was a covenant. It was the old covenant. Because that is, if you do this, this is what you're going to explain how this plan of salvation is going to happen. But then now, when it comes to the Old Testament and the New Testament, we have one thing very in common. The Old Testament was rituals. Rituals and, and do's and the following things to work on. But the New Testament, what happened in the New Testament? He didn't want rituals. He wanted what? to be part of us, right? So the same thing with the covenant. Many times people think that there was two different covenants. It's the same covenant. It's just one, it was the example of it, minute. But the new one is when it becomes you. So it reads in here, um, in verse seven, I'm reading again, for if that the first covenant has been flawless, there would have been no occasion for a second one or an attempt to institute another one. However, God finds fault with the shadowing or inadequate. And what was the fault of that? Yes? I think it's really telling when it says God finds fault with them. With them. You know, his side of the covenant was always perfect. It's always perfect. But in this case, it was their side. You know, they let it down when they said all that the Lord has said we will do. That's, that's really what it Okay. So the, the old one was what we were doing. The new one, he says, Behold, the day will come. He's talking about the new covenant is coming, said the Lord, when I will make and rectify the new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with the fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not abide in my covenant, like what you were saying, Benjamin. They were not following, you know, they were not, they were not keeping the covenant. And so I withdrew my favor and disregarded them, say the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days. So the first one, they didn't follow, we didn't follow it. The second one, which is the New Testament when Christ died. And for those days, says the Lord, I will imprint my law upon their minds. Was not on, not, it was not only just following the law. Now we need to become one. We need, we need to become like Christ. To be, to, not only to follow the, the law, but make it part of us. Because that's God's character. 
So the new covenant was not only rituals, but now it was internalized. The same service was internalized. All, I will imprint my laws upon their mind, even upon their innermost thoughts and understandings, and engrave them upon their hearts, affecting their regenerations, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. So in here we can see that it's not only there's heavenly sanctuary, and the heavenly sanctuary denotes or, or, or share or explains what God is doing for us in the plan of salvation. And many times, you will, if you ask any other denomination if they believe in the heavenly sanctuary, they don't even know what that is, but they don't study it. And the, the sad thing about it is because the devil knows that if you understand perfectly well the sanctuary and what that means and what teach us, it will be very hard for, for him to, to lie to us or to deviate us in the end time. Because the sanctuary it explains in detail how God is working to our salvation. And each, each furniture has such a specific function of it that I really encourage everyone to spend more time. This is just an introduction. This is just the highlights. This is not even covering, not even 10% of it. I just, I wish that with the Holy Spirit, we'll be able to convey to you the importance to understand and to really understand the plan of salvation. Let's go into, into the next Bible text. And the next Bible says, Bible text talks about sometimes people say, no, 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 God is here. God is always here and on us. He doesn't have a house out there. Okay, let's see what um, Psalms says about, this is just one. There's many, many Bible texts, but this is just one that says, in my distress, when I seem surrounded, I call upon the Lord and cry to my God for help. He hears my voice from his temple, and my cry for help, come before him into his very ears. So again, he's, they're telling us again that the God is in his temple in heaven, that he hears us, and then when he comes, he can, comes down to earth to help us and answer our prayers. So let's read another Psalms 102, 19, that he reads, For he looked down from his holy heights of his sanctuary from heaven, the Lord gazed on earth. So once again, is reminding us that there is a temple, a sanctuary in heaven. And we need to understand what that is and what function is it. So I'm going to go again uh, very quickly. I'm just going to read very highlights on some verses. And I'm going to let you guys, when you go home this week, and study a little bit more about the difference between the Old and the New Covenant. In Hebrew 9, and also in, in chapter 10, 1 and 3, it talks about the Old Covenant. And I think it's very clear what that means. It says, For since the law has only a shadow, just a pale representation of the good things to come, not the very image of those things, it can never, by offering the same sacrifice continuously year after year, make a perfect those who approach his altar. For if it were otherwise, would not this sacrifice have stopped being offered? 
For the worshipers, having once for all time been cleansed, would no longer have a consciousness of sin. But as it is, this continual sacrifice brings a fresh reminders of sin to be atoned year after year. That's the old, it's very clear, right? So let's read what it says in the New Covenant. That's Hebrew 8. That's what we read. It's very short. It says Jeremiah, and also it says in Jeremiah 31, 33, it says, For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days. I will put, I will put my law within them, and I will write it in their hearts, and I will be their God, and there shall be my people. Isn't it beautiful? And let me, and in and, and the next 10 minutes, and I'm going to be closing in 10 minutes, hopefully, promise. Um, let's see what Mrs. White says about the sanctuary. In Great Controversy, page 482, paragraph 2, it says, The subject of the sanctuary and the investigative judgment should be clearly understood by the people of God. Are we supposed to just read about it? No, it needs to be clearly understood. All needs and knowledge for themselves of the position and work of the great high priest. Otherwise, it will be impossible for them to exercise their faith, which is essential at this time, or to occupy the position with God's designs them to fill. Every individual has a soul to save or to lose. Each has a case pending at the bar of God. Each must meet the great judge face to face. How important then that every mind contemplates often the solemn scene when the judgment shall seat and the book shall be opened, when with Daniel every individual must stand in his lot at the end of those days. So she's letting us know that understanding the sanctuary and the plan of salvation is extremely important. And I'm going to read the next one, and that's going to be my, my last quote that I'm going to be reading on Mrs. White. It says, many and earnest were the effort made to overthrow their faith. None could fail to see that if the earthly sanctuary was a figure or a pattern of the heavenly, the law deposited in the ark on earth was an exact transcript of the law in the ark of heaven. And that in acceptance of the truth concerning the heavenly sanctuary involved the acknowledgement of the claims of God's law and the obligations of the Sabbath of the fourth commandment. Here was the secret of the bitter and determined opposition to the harmonious exposition of the scripture that reveals the administration of Christ in the heavenly sanctuary. You see, if you take the sanctuary doctrine out, you're taking what? The law of God. Take the law of God, the Sabbath, the judgment, the end time, you take everything. Everything that Christ came and died for. And it's extremely important. So now let's, let's do something more fun, very quickly. As now we know the importance of the sanctuary. We know who built the earth. You know, we know who gave the instructions. We know that there's a real sanctuary in heaven. We know what's going on. We know that's all the plan of salvation. Now let's put that in us, practically, right now. And I'm going to go very quickly. So you can see that the sanctuary and the furniture, and I presented this about two years ago, but I just kind of cut it very short. So you will know how can you apply all the furniture of the sanctuary, not, through, not only through the whole 
though the whole history of the planet, but also in your personal life. So let's start. There is a pastor that right now it, it escapes my mind. He preached this back in 2009. I'm very good at numbers, but not names. Um, and I really loved it, and it helped to understand the, the plan of salvation. Huh? Yes. Then, and I'm going to sh share very, very quickly how can we apply the sanctuary in everything. So we go into, again, it says, Thy way, O God, is in the sanctuary. So let's see how, it is, how true that is. So we have the Israel, the deliverance, and the exodus. The first thing was what? The Passover. That's the first furniture. Then they crossed the Red Sea. That is the second furniture, which is also baptism. The next one was the manna, right? The next one was what? The royal nation. They became the light of the world. Pray in preparation for the Mount Sinai. So it, they were following all the furnitures of the sanctuary. And the last one was what? The Ten Commandments. That's when Christ, God gave the Ten Commandments to his people. All right, what about when Christ came down to heaven? Let's see how he follows that, the same thing. So that the first one is Christ descended from heaven, which should represent the most high, the, the most holy place that, where the Ten Commandments is, God's. The next one, he what? He was the food, was the will of the Father. Let his light shine. So Christ's light was a shining. Lived a life of prayer. Was baptized. And he was crucified. So now let's see... How can we apply the sanctuary in Christ's life? We have, he's the lamb of the world, the lamb of God. He's the water of life. The bread of life. Our intercessor, which is the altar of incense. The light of the world. And the law personalized. What about Christ's life and temptations? There's a pattern also. Christ, born among animals, behold the lamb. Christ was baptized. Turned stone to bread. That was the first temptation that Satan wanted him to fail. The second one, offer presumptions, the altered incense. Satan wanted to see if he could fail and on the fourth furniture of the sanctuary. The next one, bow exchange for glory. Again, the third temptation of Christ that Jesus was, uh, that Satan was trying to Jesus to offer um, worship to him. And the last one preaches the law and the mercy of God. What about the death Christ, uh, the death of Christ and the wood, wood side, wooden, wooden side, sites? Wound sites. You have the nails in the feet, the pierced side, blood in the water, the nails in the left hand, nail in the right hand, die from the broken heart, and the crown of thorns. What about Christ's ascension? Came to earth, was sacrificed, 
resurrected and purified, brings to heaven the first fruits, ascended to intercede for us, ministering among the candlesticks, and the judgment begins. What about uh, the Jews rejected the blueprint? Rejected the Lamb of God, rejected the water of life, rejected the bread of life, his, uh, rejected his prayer of forgiveness, rejected the comp uh, comprehended not the light, and rejected his law. What about the book of the New Testament? Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John talks about the sacrifice of Christ. Acts, his main topic is baptism. Romans to Jude, the word of God. Romans to Jude, again, the intercessory. Romans to Jude, the witnessing. And the revelation, the throne of God. What about our path? When someone hears or um, wants to baptize or hear the word and, and repents, what about what kind of blueprint, what kind of guide do we need to have in our journey, in our spiritual journey? We must accept Christ's sacrifice. We must be baptized. And after the baptism comes what? We must study the word, right? And after we, oh, while we're studying the words, what comes next? Come on, you should know this by now, huh? We must pray. The prayer is the incense that goes to heaven. And while we are studying the word and we're praying, what is the next thing that we need to do? Be the light of the world. We must let our light shine to others. And after that, if you love me, what God says, keep my commandments. The next one. Um, also, we can see the articles when it comes to prophecy. I'm going to skip the, two, the 2300. I'm just going to focus on the last one. When it comes to Revelation and how Satan tried to destroy every single article and rep what represents. So let's start with who is Satan will use, the little horn, and let's see how he used it through the history. Daily sacrifice taken away. Didn't the church, um, didn't Satan try to take that away? What about cast down the truth, the ground? Showing himself that he is God. Wear out the saints of the Most High and think to change times and laws. And, and I know, again, this is a very topic, uh, touchy topic, because we are not condemning people, we're condemning systems. And the only system, not people, the only system that falls into every single of these characteristics is only one. Now, if you find another system, I would like to hear about it. It's the first one. Is this one. The Roman Catholic system attacking each article. And we're going to see how they did it. Sacrifice of Christ cast down and was replaced by penance and the Eucharist. And sometimes you will say, what Eucharist? What did they say there? 
This was taken by uh, taken from the dignity of the priesthood by by Likert, page 33. He says the power of the priest is the power of the divine person for the trans trans subordination of the bread requires as much power as the creator of the world, thus the priest may be called the creator of the creator. The dig and that's from um, well, the Roman Catholics training books for their priest. So it not only took the sacrifice, but they became the creator of the creator, of which they became more than Christ. What about baptism? The baptism cast down, replaced by infant sprinkling, which is not biblical. What about the, the showbread? The word of God cast down, replaced by church tradition. Now, if you know, the church tradition is more important than the Bible. And then after that, we went to prayer to God, cast down, replaced by confession booth. And now, instead of going directly to the throne of God, now they, they preach, no, you don't go directly to God. You do need to confess your sin to us because we are the creator of the creators. The next one is the light of the, of the church cast down and the persecution that went from 1,260 years trying to eliminate them. And last but not least, the law of God cast down replaced by the day of worship. They were not happy to take all of them, but the last one was to take the Sabbath, which is the seal of God, and move it to Sunday. And it's not just us. This is not a seven-day Adventist. Um, the cleansing of the sanctuary ended in by 1844 is how long before the truth is restored? We're talking about Daniel. And I just want to go very quickly, because I, don't want you, I want you to study this for yourself. John Gill is a Baptist scholar. This is where he says, this 2,300 days may be considered as so many years, which will bring it down to the end of the sixth millennium, or thereabout, when it may be hope there will be a new face of things upon the sanctuary and church of God. So way back when, in the 1800s, there was a Baptist scholar that was saying that the sanctuary had a very important role in the end time. And he was the one who presented the year today. Um, we were not the one who invented the year-to-day doctrine. I mean, um, like one year is equal to a, year, uh, to a day or a day. It was not us. It was, I think it was the Baptist and the Lutheran. Yes? Originally, it was God. So the first person that we know to have understood it meaning a year for a day was actually Daniel. Yeah, but Daniel was a book that was not studied by the Jews. It was a curse. So talking about after 1844, in the new era, after all the 2,300-year prophecy ended, it was not also brought down. I think even, even some individuals like uh, Luther and Melanchthon, mm -hmm. some of the scholars of the very early Reformation, even some of them thought that the 2,300 days could be referring to years. They just didn't know when or it started or when it ended. They were pretty clear on the persecution they were suffering being a part of it. Right. So those who started thinking in 1844 about how to understand the ending of the prophecies, and this would help because if you know that the church removed all the articles, it has to be a way 
when God says, when he says, he asks, how long will it take for you to, to clean the sanctuary? So he needs to bring back every single article of the sanctuary, right? So let's, let's start from uh, 2060 years, that's 1798, and we're gonna see how little by little, by different denominations, God start bringing back each furniture of the sanctuary and their meaning of it. So the first one was in the 1300, that was John Wycliffe, Lollards, it's a translated the Bible. He brought that the word it was the first thing, the most important thing to follow. And he was the one who translated the Bible to make it in the language that everybody could understand. So he brought the word back to his people. And back then, he was considered an occult. In the 1400s, 1400s, 1500s, we had Martin Luther, the founder of the Lutheran Church. He brought the justification by faith. So he brought back Christ's sacrifice, that we are justified by faith and by faith alone. And back then, he was persecuted by whom? He was considered a cult, and he was persecuted by all the religions in those days. Next, the 1500s, we have John, Cal um, John Calvin, the founder of the Presbyterian Church. He brought the prayer back. To the people. He said, we, no longer, we don't need to go to an intermediary. We can go directly to God. And he was persecuted by the Lutheran, was persecuted by other churches back then. It was considered as an occult. In the 1600s, John Smirt and Robert Williams, founder of the Baptist Church, they brought the restoration of the baptism. He said, no, the sprinkling is not biblical. The Bible said it has to be full immersion. So the new group, the Baptists, start preaching, restoring the baptism. And back then, he was persecuted by the Lutheran and all the churches in those days, and they were accusing him as an occult. He was accusing the Baptists to be an occult. The next one, the 1700, John Wesley, founder of the Methodist Church, brought every individual is an evangelist. You see how the history start, God, little by little, start bringing, bringing all those furniture and what they mean. So, and that, and by those days, when the Methodist church start talking about to be evangelized, then the Lutheran was persecuting them, the Baptists were persecuting them, the Presbyterian was persecuting them, and they were calling the, the Methodist a cult, and what is, the last, uh, what is the last one that we need to get? So if God brought every single one of them, what is the last one that's missing? In the 1800s, representatives from every denomination founded the movement of the Seventh-day Adventists. And the Seventh-day Adventists was the movement that came, was born by many denominations in those days that brought all the knowledge together and they brought back not only the Ten Commandments but also the worshiping of the Sabbath. And that's how the present truth, it was restored. 
everlasting gospel that has been preached since 1844, later after, is all a group of a little bit of a lot of people from different denominations got together and started preaching what the Bible says. And the everlasting gospel, it talks about the three angels' message, which is not going to cover. But I want to share something with you. It's one of the constellations. Or in constellation, that's when we believe what Christ is going to come. And if you overexpose the sanctuary in a scale, it's amazing how even in the heavens we can see the sanctuary. And the end time... I'm almost finishing. You know, Christ bear the cross and earth, clean self and all worldly things at the end time. Rely on God's word in the end time, 144,000. We have the, uh, Jacob's trouble and then second coming. Death in Christ, body and spirit received, enter the city, the marriage supper, and the tabernacle of God. And I'm going to finish with two statements, by one statement that says, the subject of the sanctuary was the key which unlocked the mysteries of the disappointment of the 1844. It opened to view a complete system of truth, connected and harmonious, showing that God's hands had directed the great Advent movement and revealing present duties it is brought to the present and the future. The subject of the sanctuary and the investigative judgment should be clear understood by the people of God, all need a knowledge for themselves of the position and work of the great high priest. Otherwise, it will be impossible for them or for us to exercise their faith, which is essential at this time and the end time. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for all your blessings. We thank you, O Lord, that in you wise and merciful character so fit to share with us the work that you are prepared, doing for us in the plan of salvation. It is my prayer, Lord, that the Holy Spirit take my deficiencies of presenting this amazing doctrine and talk and teach each one of us here the important to understand each one of the articles and, and the role that that takes from us so we can be prepared and ready to receive you in heaven. Amen. I would like to share with you.